All right, let's start. Yeah. What exactly are our papers do? Because I was thinking about this week, I was like, I don't have a due date in my head. So. Um, those are those of you who are doing three papers. One of them, the second one, is due next Monday. Um, does the second one have to be the FM one? If you the you have to do an Ephraim one. Yeah, but is the second no, one? No, 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 the second one doesn't have to be the Ephraim one. One of them has to be, if everyone has to do a paper on section Q of Ephraim. Um, if, you do a third, if you do a third paper, or if you do three papers, um, that can be your third paper, or your second, it doesn't matter. If you're doing two papers plus the memorization, um, it's um, both are due. Everything for the class is due by the end of finals, so that's May 11th. Um, and I think I'm not going to be in town on May 11th, so you can't do the memorization that day. Um, but everything has to be done by May 11th. Um, if you're doing three papers, you really should get in your second paper by next Monday. Um, if you're doing two papers plus a memorization, then you have till um, May 11th for your last paper, um, and then do the memorization sometime before then. Um, hand up. It was just, <clears throat> do they uh, tell professors like suggest a day to get all the senior stuff in? Yeah, they make they they make demands and we ignore them. Okay. <laughs> um, the the la the day we have to get the senior stuff in for 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 rills is um, I think the last exam is May 11th and we have three days after that, so May 14th. So okay. let if you how many are seniors? Okay, so. Um, no, I have a lot of seniors in other classes, but yeah. So I have to get in senior grades by May 14th. Um, I mean, I don't really have to, but then they start thinking that I'm several standard deviations beyond where they want me to be. Um, so May, that's why May 11th is all right. Okay? All right. Um, so let us... Everyone's now finished reading this. I'm going to... Yes. Um, let's go back to um, section M. Um, and just get to the end of it. Um, and then we went uh, very quickly through the end of G last time, but I think we should slow down and do that again. Actually, let's start with that. Um, so remember, um, this is where Maya is um, <coughs> can be seen um, laying down in flower Urzuli's heart emblem on the floor. Um, and she does it to bless them. Um, that is, it's an emblem which is going to bless their marriage. Um, and then it's the end of the season, it's September, um, things are, feel like they're winding down. Um, one, um, thing you can notice as you read through the Book of Ephraim is how many, um, indications there are, we've talked a little bit about how many indications there are of what year it is, but there are also many, many more indications of what time of year it is. Um, there's a sense in which 
um, on the one hand, we're looking over 18 or 20 years of their lives together. Um, on the other hand, um, a lot of that gets mapped into the time of a single year. Um, people remember Shakespeare's Sonnet 73? Anyone? You probably did it in high school. It's one of the three or four that tends to get done in high school if you do any Shakespeare sonnets. Um, sonnet 73. Actually, I believe it's L-X-X-I-I-I. -I -I. Um, that time of year that makes me behold. Yeah, can you do it? Can you go on? Okay, so it's, do, is this familiar to people besides, besides Isabel? Okay, it's, <coughs> it should be, it's one of the greats. Um, that it's, so Shakespeare, an old-ish man, is talking to the young man with whom he's in love. Um, and what he says to the young man is, that time of year thou mayest in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So if you look at me, you can see what time of year? Autumn, yeah, late autumn. Um, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. Then he goes on, in me thou seest the closing of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away, death's second self that seals up all in rest. So the second quatrain, you know the Shakespearean sonnets are three quatrains plus a couplet, you get three, four-line stanzas and then a couplet that um, sums or turns or ironizes or does something to everything that's come before. So the first quatrain is that time of year. The second quatrain, in me thou seest the closing of such day, you could put it as that time of day thou mayest in me behold. And then the third quatrain is, in me thou seest the glowing of such fire as on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as on the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed by that which it was nourished by. So the third quatrain is not only the day is coming to an end, but the fire that's lit on this cold day in this late time of year is coming to an end. What's amazing about the sonnet is that Shakespeare is giving you three metaphors for old age, for its being late. But the metaphors are related to each other. That is, it's late in the year. That's a metaphor, as though lifetime is a year. The second quatrain is, it's late in the day, as though lifetime is a day. But the move from that metaphor from late in the year to late in the day is also showing you a narrowing down of the possibilities of time. That is, a lifetime has been reduced to a year in the first quatrain, but now in the second quatrain it's been reduced to a day, as though it's late in the day that the first quatrain gives you for where it is in the year. And then, not only is it late in the day, but it's even later. The fire is burning out 
that was lit to warm you in that day late in the year. And then um, finally the last couplet is, This thou perceivest which makes thy love more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Um, the sonnet comes to an end. His life comes to an end. So in the Book of Ephraim, what you will see are many, many references to time of year. There are many different years that these times of year occur. But, there, but nevertheless, um, just as we go through the alphabet, we also go through the seasons. Um, so now we have um, Maya returning. It's the end of the summer. Um, things are getting later in the year. Um, something in the sad end of season light remains unsaid because Hans has entered the room and now we find out that JM, this is his last life, but DJ, well, another two or three, John Clay, a beaming host, already plans the gala. And JM is sad about this. Forgive me. Forgive my saying so. He says, that was insensitive, he says to Ephraim. And then his answers unrecorded. The cloud passed more quickly than the shade it cast. So whatever Ephraim said, they don't remember. Other stuff happened, but the shade of that cloud was there. The cloud passed more quickly than the shade it cast. What shade? The foreshadower of nothing. Didn't foreshadow anything, dearest heart, but the dim wish of lives to drift apart. So that's a pretty sad summing up of erotic life, the dim wish of lives to drift apart. Um, we have said that one thing that Ephraim stands for is survival after death, the idea that you could have many lives. And the idea of having many lives gives you characters like Rufus Farmerton, that is, J.M. in his previous life, or Gopping and Simpson, two lives for someone whose third life will be as Wendell, at least the third life that we know of. DJ has had 34 lives already. His previous 34 lives ended, ended either in the cradle or by violence, the gallows or the knife. Why was this? You did not take to life. Now, however, one or two at most three lives more. So lives in general, if you see the word lives in the Book of Ephraim in the plural, it tends to mean life after life of a single soul, a soul learning things in each or between each incarnation, and then back to the vacation of being in this world, life after life of a single soul. But now it turns out that very deeply on some level, the plural word lives doesn't refer to my life and then my next life and then my next life. It refers to my life and DJ's life, a dim wish of lives to drift apart. It would be so much better if the end of 
one life if the pluralization of lives just meant you went from one to the other and stayed there. But the dim wish of lives to drift apart, it's, that's horizontal, you could say. Life after life, that's on some vertical axis through, axis through time. But the dim wish of lives to drift apart, that's what happens here in this life, as he's about to call it at the end of this section. So, for shatter of nothing, dearest heart, but the dim wish of lives to drift apart, times we felt, and then we get back to the heart intricate as birdsong, times we felt returning to this house together, separately back from somewhere, still in coat and muffler, so it's cold now, coat and muffler, turning up the thermostat while a slow eddying chill about our ankles all but purrs, like Maya, the, like, excuse me, not like Maya, like um, um, Maisie the cat, the junk mail bristling, ornaments in pairs, gazing straight through us, dust-bitten, vindictive. Times we've felt a ghost of roughness underfoot. There it was, the valentine that Maya, kneeling on our threshold, drew to bless us, of white meal sprinkled, then with rum and lit. Heart once intricate as birdsong, it hardened on the spot. So it's beautiful, it hardens, we get this beautiful um, emblem, but also this emblem which is becoming hard-hearted, already hard-hearted. It hardened on the spot. A good thing that is going to inevitably be something other than that, because that's also part of the dim wish of lives to drift apart. Much come and go has blackened, paired the scabby curlicue down to smatterings, which even so promise to last this lifetime. That will do. And um, Ben was saying that that will do, he was reading that will do as, well, at least one lifetime. We have that together. And, okay, that will do. But on the other hand, no, it won't do. That's what he's just said, that it won't do. And if now it will do, if that's enough, if that's all he can hope for is the one lifetime, then he's not going to say anymore. That will do. I'm not going to say any more about this. The level of refusal to go further into this shadowy world, the dim wish of lives to drift apart, um, is pretty strong here. So now, if you get back to section M, um, here's Maya. She has her dream. Um, they talk to Ephraim about it. Maya has met him. And she makes that movie which I'm going to pretend I believe you've watched. Um, did you watch it? What did you think? Very odd and sort of incomprehensible. In, in, incomprehensible, yeah. That she's an experimental filmmaker. But does it help? <laughs> does it help to know what she saw in Ephraim's world? Yeah, all right. So then we get this last reflective paragraph. How were they to be kept down on the farm, 
those bumpkin seers. So who are the bumpkin seers? Sorry, this is the, section of, the end of section M, the last verse paragraph in M. How were they to be kept down on the farm? What's that a reference to? Anyone know? Have you ever heard that phrase? Um, how are they going to keep you down on the farm? Really? No one's heard that? Vaguely familiar? Not even vaguely? You're just giving the vaguely familiar look well, even though it's not. <laughs> yeah, well, sort of. Um, so it was actually a song and then a kind of saying after World War II, which is how are you going to keep us down on the farm or how are you going to keep them down on the farm now that they've seen Paris. So the idea is that um, all these American soldiers have gone to Paris um, in World War II. They've liberated um, Europe and now they're supposed to return to their farms at a time when agriculture was something like um, a hundred times more, a hundred um, times as many people worked in agriculture um, at the end of World War II, or maybe it was at the end of World War I, than do now. Um, huge, it was, I think, the largest um, sector of the American workforce was, was agriculture. Um, absolutely not true now with mechanized farming, factory farms, as um, Merrill himself will point out later. Um, but um, that's where labor was. And then the question was, you know, is there going to be a revolution? Here people have seen Paris, and are they really going to go back to Nebraska or to Kansas after that? You know, The Wizard of Oz is a little bit um, about that also, even though it precedes this. But I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. So that's, it's a very famous song. I'm sure, I'm sure Wikipedia has an actual entry on it. Um, how are you going to keep, so here's, so, so the song is, how are you going to keep them down on the farm now that they've seen Paris? That's what Merrill is alluding to here. How were they to be kept down on the farm, those bumpkin seers? So the farm is our world. Those bumpkin seers, who are the bumpkin seers? People know what a bumpkin is? A country bumpkin. A country bumpkin. So what's country bumpkin? What, just what, what, what resonances does it have for you? Well, I mean, it kind of means something that's like a little backwater. Um, yeah. Kind of uneducated and, and um, kind of crude and unsophisticated. Yeah. So um, backwater is, is probably the best word for it. So yeah, how are they to be kept down on the farm? Those bumpkin seers, now that they had seen Paris, the Piraeus, Paradise. So how did they see paradise, those bumpkin seers? Remember what we looked through the movie was how Maya showed it to us, but there are not a lot of people on the farm who are going to see Maya Duran's movies because it's pre YouTube now, of course anyone would. But um, how did how did Maya see paradise? Yeah, and why did she dream of paradise? Or she left her body because because someone else, um, a lady who died 106 years ago, came into her body. So they switched places for that night. Um, so um, how did other seers then see paradise? People living on farms. 
How did Dante see paradise? When? When he fell asleep and what happened to his body? Was incarnated? No, someone very highly placed up there. Yeah, there's a switch that a that hundred years or more after you die, you return to a body sleeping where you lived. And the soul of that, and you switch places with the soul of that body. So um, if anyone's read Susan Cooper's King of Shadows, it's, it's the same sort of thing. That is, that um, there's an idea that you could have a switch of souls during some sleep or coma or trance state. Is anyone watching that, show, that detective show um, about the guy in a coma who's solving crimes? It's supposed to be really good. I forget what it's called. Uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of like in the flash-forward vein of things. Um, at any rate. Um, so, bumpkin seers, how did they see paradise? Switched. Yeah. They went to sleep one night in their, in, in, on the farm, and some person who died over 100 years ago comes and takes over their body, and they see paradise. Um, did they see Ephraim in 1930s evening clothes? Maybe. Probably not because we are correct in styles the dreamer knows, and they probably don't know 1930s evening clothes style, but maybe they do from watching movies. At any rate, they've seen paradise. Everyone, even these bumpkins, have seen paradise. So how are they to be kept down on the farm, those bumpkin seniors, now that they had seen Paris, the Piraeus? What's Piraeus, anyone know? It's the harbor and area right outside Athens in Greece. So um, the Piraeus is where you embark um, on the Aegean Sea. Um, so if they'd seen Paris, if they'd seen Athens, if they'd seen Paradise, the point there, of course, is the alliterations. Um, but also it's that JM is going to go off to Athens while DJ goes off later on drifts apart to go see his parents. Um, how were they to be kept down on the farm now that they had seen Paris and Paradise? Now that they had gleaned from nightclub ultraviolet the glint of teeth, jeans flexing white as fire, a cleavage's firm shade haltered in pearl. So um, what you have here again is that phosphorescent negative, nightclub ultraviolet, it's like black lights in a nightclub, and the glint of teeth now become black, um, while jeans, dark blue jeans, flex white as fire, a cleavage's firm shade haltered in pearl. So what's, um, imagine an evening gown and imagine um, seeing the whiteness of the skin of a white person um, now turn dark and the shadow in the cleavage turn to pearl, um, to the look of pearl turned white. Where were we? On unsteady ground. What ground? Remember, Ephraim likes to look back down on the ground he knew. But where were we on unsteady ground? Earth, heaven, reality, projection 
Are we on earth? Are we in heaven? Is this reality? Is it projection? Half-stoned couples. So earth and heaven, a half-stoned couple. Reality, projection, a half-stoned couple. Um, doing the chicken and the egg till dawn. So what would that mean? Well, arguing about which came first, the chicken and the egg, yeah. Um, you're giving a sly smile. It's like a dance. Yeah, they're at a nightclub. They're doing the chicken and the egg till dawn. But what dance is it actually? There's an obscene joke here in the next line. You're smiling. Do you want to say it? No. Does anyone? I mean, which came first? Yes. Half-stoned couples doing the chicken and the egg till dawn. Which came first? I think there's a Gary Larson cartoon where the chicken is saying to the egg, you always come first. Um, yeah, so it's somehow earth and heaven here, um, reality and projection. They're having um, a kind of sex with each other. Um, it is, of course, the question, which is first? Is earth before heaven? Which would mean that heaven is a projection of earth, something that burns in our skulls, or is heaven before earth? Is that the reality? Um, so that's the question. Is Ephraim our creation, or are we the creation of the heaven that Ephraim now lives in? Um, Half-stoned couples doing the chicken and the egg till dawn, which came first, and would two never come together? Sleep then in each other's arms above the stables rich with dung and hay. Um, there again, it's can't there just be love, you could say, on this world in this world? Um, notice how the obscene, dirty pun modulates into what follows it. Just sleeping together, happy, above the stables of this earth, rich with dung and hay. Our senses hurt. So much was still undone. So many questions would remain unuttered. Often on either pillow, tossed ahead in heat for this or that conceptual milkmaid, hired to elevate the chore, infect the groom, and drive the old gray mare straight off her rocker. So there's a lot of stuff packed in here. You all know the song, The Old Gray Mare? You know it? Yeah. Care to sing it? The old gray mare just ain't what she used to be. Ain't what she used to be. Ain't what she used to be. Good, yeah. Um, not familiar to people? It's, it's one of those nursery rhyme songs. The old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. Um, so that on either pillow, that means DJ and JM's pillow, tossed ahead, so they're having trouble sleeping. They're not just sleeping in each other's arms. Um, they're on the farm, notice, that the farm is earth. Here they are, sleeping above the stables rich with dung and hay. That's on the farm of earth. Um, but their heads are tossing because they're thinking about the milkmaid. Again, this is all very standard. That is, um, the 
crotchety old farmer is um, thinking about the milkmaid um, and not his wife who's lying next to him. So this is a metaphorical milkmaid, a conceptual milkmaid. They're thinking about um, other stuff than simply being together and in love. For the two of them, the conceptual milkmaid is art in some way. So the conceptual milkmaid hired to elevate the chore, make all of this not just the drudgery of farm work, but to give it some interest, to give farm work some interest. Infect the groom, um, that is, have some sort of sexual relation with another one of the farm workers, and drive the old gray mare straight off her rocker. And so he's now explains what this means. Often, having seen a film of Maya's, read a page of Dante, nothing was for it but to rise and shine, not in the fields, God knew, so not to do real farm work, or in blue air, not to rise up to heaven, so neither to do real labor in the real world, nor to go to this heaven, which really is mythological. So it's time to rise and shine, not in the fields, God knew, or in blue air, but through the spectacles put on to focus that one surface to be truly scratched, a new day's quota of short-sighted prose. So he's trying to write the novel. And that's, he will read a page of Dante or see a film of Maya's. And what he will want to do is write. That's all, that's the only truth there is, is the truth of writing. So he says exactly halfway through the book of Ephraim at the end of section M. And so the next part is going to be notes for the ill-starred novel. And now we get some notes uh, for the novel. Um, but let's go back now, first of all, to something very crucial that we just skipped in A. Um, actually, we didn't skip this, but we didn't spend enough time with it. Um, he gives us the very useful information that you might wish that every writer would give you for everything they write, which is what the theme is of the Book of Ephraim. What is the theme? No. Yeah, just on the very first page. I had from the start a theme whose steady light shone back, it seemed, from every least detail exposed to it. So remember, that's like the scratches on the mirror. Um, the theme is the candlelight. Wait, where is this? This is the very first page. Um, there's uh, about halfway down. The line begins, knew my setting, and had from the start a theme whose steady light shone back, it seemed, from every least detail exposed to it. 
I came to see it as an old exalted one. Here's the theme. The incarnation <coughs> and withdrawal of a god. So that's the theme of the book of Ephraim. The incarnation and withdrawal of a god. And then as he points out, that last phrase is Northrop Frye's. Uh, Northrop Frye was uh, one of the great 20th century critics. He taught at the University of Toronto. Um, do you know him? You're smiling. Um, very famous for a book called Fearful Symmetry was his first book, and it was uh, about Blake. And then even more famous for a book called um, The Anatomy of Criticism. Um, Paul Morrison, I think, TA'd for him. Um, certainly knew him, and I believe was actually his TA um, when he was a graduate student. Um, so that Northrop Fry says, um, you know, if you know Joseph Campbell and the the story, the what is it, the story of the hero or whatever it is, do people know? The hero with a thousand faces. The hero with a thousand faces. Yeah, um, he. That's a kind of um, popularization of ideas of Northrop Fry's. Um, not only Fry, but uh, Fry was the person who was probably most important for that. Um, so that's the idea, the incarnation and withdrawal of a god. According to Fry, that's one of the major themes of, or one of the most basic themes of literature. That is, there are three or four basic themes that you will find in a literary work. That's one of them, the incarnation and withdrawal of a god. So who's the god here? Who, who is incarnated and then withdraws? Ephraim? Yeah, is that what you're going to say too? Yeah, Ephraim. But who is Ephraim? Well, that's what we've been asking for several weeks now. Um, let's just say that he's love. So if you ask what's the most basic plot in the book of Ephraim, it's the coming and then the leaving of love. If... Um, is anyone doing, I know, I know Ben is, but is anyone else doing Maya's um, quotation from Q for their paper? Is this a commitment not to, or you just haven't decided yet? Does everyone know what they're doing? Slightly. Sorry? Slightly. Slightly? <laughs> what are you doing? I'm deciding between like three of them. <laughs> okay. Um, well, Maya's quotation is relevant here. Uh, little horses cannot carry big riders. Um, so the incarnation and withdrawal of a god. If Ephraim is love, then, the gut, then love comes and goes over the course of the 20 years. If Ephraim in some sense is youth, how old is Ephraim? How, how, what does he look like? Do you remember? Yeah, why that age? That's when it's most probable to die. Yeah, when it first seems credible to die. So he looks the way he looked when he first realizes it could actually happen. It will happen. Um, up until that age, roughly that age, um, people, you all, don't quite know. You think you know, but you don't quite know that you'll die. Um, so he somehow stands for let's say, the end of youth or the beginning of what's not youth. He's the, he's the threshold between those things. Um, so he's still, he's the beginning of a certain kind of life. 
and then his withdrawal. Well, that happens over time. Okay, let's go to the amazing section F. In the past, lots of people have um, taken this as one of the things they've memorized, just to mention. Um, if you want to do two, which is a way of saying if you want to do <coughs> two letters from the Book of Ephraim, that would be fine too. Um, so flash forward, April 1st in Purgatory, Oklahoma. The joke being... You laughed? Yeah, it's funny. Why? It's not, it's not purgatory. Yeah. Like, like, he hasn't died. He's yes, just in Oklahoma. Right. Yeah. Which could be worse. Um, <laughs> yeah. None of, any, anyone from Oklahoma? Good. Um, so there is no purgatory Oklahoma. There actually is a truth or consequences New Mexico, but there is no purgatory Oklahoma. Um, but Tamerlan is a real person. Um, so flash forward April 1st in purgatory Oklahoma. Why April 1st? April Fool's Day. Yeah, so there's going to be a little bit of jokiness here. Young Tamerlan takes me calling on his chimpanzees. So why does Tamerlan have chimpanzees? Do you remember? In Purgatory, Oklahoma, of all places? It's not like we're in, you know, Kenya or something. He's a scientist. He studies chimps. Um... And in particular, do you remember what he studies about them? The same sort of thing that our own Irene Pepperberg studies in parrots? Talking. Talking. Yeah. No way, really? Yes, <laughs> way. <laughs> um, do people know who Nim Chimsky is? Like yeah, but it, there's a chimp named Nim Chimsky. Um, is that? Yeah, so the, the idea is Nim Chimsky is one of the chimps that uh, taught sign language, um, which Noam Chomsky thinks chimps can't have language. But Nim Chimsky seems to think that they can. Um, so flash forward April 1st in Purgatory, Oklahoma. Young Tamerlan takes me calling on his chimpanzees. Raw earth reds and sky blues. Yet where we've paused to catch our breath, the lake, small and unrippling, bleaches to opaque cafe au lait daguerreotype the world it doubles. So just quickly paraphrase that. The lake reflects, but in a not perfect way, kind of soft way. Yeah, it, it, it bleaches what it's reflecting. Um, so it doesn't reflect it with, with all its colors. It's kind of muddy, so it's a cafe au lait daguerreotype. What's a daguerreotype, anyone? old photo on glass. Um, so the first photos, or the first really good photos, were, were done on glass. There were, you could actually only have one of them. Photos were unique objects. Um, but daguerreotypes, if you, can, if you ever see a show of daguerreotypes, you should actually go see it, um, because they're exquisitely detailed. They're the best uh, mid-19th century photos you can find. Um, their fineness of, of uh, their, their extreme high definition. Um, of a kind that you don't think of photographs achieving until the 20th century. Um, and they're kind of sepia. Um, the color in daguerreotypes is kind of sepia. So um, this is like all the other mirrors or surfaces of water that act as mirrors in the Book of Ephraim. Remember, they go swimming in the, in the sound. 
and they don't realize that Ephraim can see them there because any reflecting surface would do. And they're embarrassed when he praises both our bodies and our wits um, because he's seen them swimming naked in Long Island Sound. So now here's another lake which doubles the world. Stump and grassy hummock, hut, ramshackle dock, poor furniture of Miranda's island. So where's the island? In the lake. And who is Miranda? A chimpanzee, yes. And who else is Miranda? Why is this chimp on an island named Miranda? Shakespeareans. Yeah, the young girl in the Tempest is named Miranda. Yeah. It's also a good name for a smart chimp because it means uh, must must be seen. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Because Amanda yeah. means must be loved. Right. Good. Yeah. To be seen, must be seen, must be admired. Even. Yeah. Um, it's almost an anagram for admired. Um, but yeah, must be must be looked at. Um, uh, must be wondered at. In um, so a miracle is something that you see and wonder at. Um, it's not just just seeing. In, in current Spanish, it would just mean look, look. But it's like whoa, look. If you hear someone saying mira, mira, that means look at that. Um, so yeah, worth looking at. Must be looked at. Um, so yeah, a good name. So Miranda is on the island in the Tempest. Later in section X, there's a, um, and in section V, there's a painting that J.M. spends some time on. Do you remember what painting it is? By Giorgione in the Academia in Venice. I'll try and pull it up next time. It's the painting called La Tempesta. And it's one of only a couple of paintings known to be by Giorgione. Um, and it's a really fantastic painting. Um, and it's what J.M. goes to see in Venice. And he sees all these couples, not half-stoned this time, who themselves have gone to see the painting. Um, do you remember what happens in their teacup? There's a tempest, a tempest in our teacup, which Gopping Simpson um, wastes his time at, the tempest in our cup. So do you know where the word tempest comes from, or temperature? What its root meaning is? Heat. No. Time. Yes. Yeah, as in um, temporal or temporary. Um, so when you say in French, quel temps fait-il, what does that mean? Well, it literally means what's the weather, but it's kind of weather thought of as time of day or time of year or time of season. So, um, if you, it, so, so that's, it's idiomatic in French for what's the weather. Um, but the idea of weather and the idea of time go together, and they go together in their root meaning. So the tempest is also the tempest of time. So here's Miranda on her island. She is sitting huddled back to us in the one tall dead tree 
Only when Bruno gibbering thumps the dirt does she turn round. So who's Bruno? Another chimp, a little bit less delicate in his sensibilities since he's gibbering and thumping the dirt. Only when Bruno gibbering thumps the dirt does she turn round and see us and descend to dance along the hateful water's edge, making the happy sign. Why is the water hateful? Yeah, and chimps can't swim. Um, do you know that about them? Uh, chimps are, have five times as much muscle as humans and correspondingly less fat. Muscles weigh way more than fat does, so chimps are too heavy to swim. They can't keep up can't keep themselves up in water. That's why if you go to zoos, you'll always find monkeys and chimps on islands. Um, that way you don't have to fence them in. Um, so she dances along the hateful water's edge, making the happy sign, happy to see them. Behavior which allows for her no less inspiredly sudden spells, there's that word of pure unheeding, like a Haydn finale marked jocoso, but shot that is playful, but shot through with silences, regret, for knowledge, who can doubt she's one of us? One of us in what sense? Human, real, look at her. She's happy to see Tamerlane. She's making the happy sign. The water is hateful. She's got emotions. She's got feelings. Who can doubt she's one of us? She has been raised from birth in that assumption. She thinks she is. It appears the plans to wed her, like as not to Bruno when both reach puberty, and determine what traces, if any, she will then transmit to her own offspring of our mother wit. So the idea is they'll have little chimps, and the question is, will she teach them sign language? If they don't teach the little chimps sign language, will she do it? Now she's being rowed across to us, making the hurry sign. Now heartbeat visible through plum dark breast. Child face alight within its skeptic brooding mask has landed. Up the low red clay brow scrambles, flinging her whole weight as Tamerlan's features disappear into one great open-jawed kiss that threatens to go on and on. I'll watch a film of when they made if I can stand it, he will say at lunch, but for her manners. So she's so happy to see him. This is his version of a child. Here I stand, friend of her friend, whom she must either love or overlook or maul. What could be more simple in deciding about a person? Love, overlook, or maul. Here is her hand, reaching out for me in its charcoal glove, scuffed and wrinkled, myself taken in before I know it by uncritical eyes, unlike the moment, because the moment is critical. But no, she takes him in with uncritical eyes as we solemnize our new, our old relation, kissing kin. That is, they're genetically very close. Kissing kin. And then the great line, moment that in me made the happy sign. So this ultra-sophisticated poem, here you just get this moment of pure happy. What could be better? So, but can it last? And notice DJ is not with him at that point. Um, okay, we will continue tomorrow. If you haven't finished, finished. If you have finished, reread.